Good morning, everyone. As John said, we're continuing our passage through the book of 1 Samuel. I'm reading chapter 8 today. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, let everyone go back to his own town. Thanks, Kerry. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you'd help us now to, to understand it, to take it to heart and to live according to your will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the, uh, the characteristics of this challenging time over this past, I suppose you'd say, 18 months or so, is, uh, that, is uh, that leaders and leadership have taken on a new level of awareness and importance. And uh, it's good that uh, our year six to eight are very well trained. <laughs> Despite their four-month sabbatical, they are uh, heading out to uh, the, their program now. Apologies, guys. Uh, Leadership and, lead, and, and leaders have, have taken on a, a new level of awareness and uh, an importance to us. We've looked to our political leaders who have shaped so many of the changes that we've experienced or perhaps we've looked to alternate leaders and, uh, and pinned our hopes on them thinking maybe they would do a better job 
it's kind of one of the characteristics of life that we, we look to leaders. Um, as we face the, the challenges of life, as we look for security, for safety, for success, it's kind of normal, it's natural, it's uh, common to look to leaders to bring that. But as we do that, I want us to consider how God shapes and influences that desire for success, for security, for, for um, safety, and, and the tendency to, to cling on to the leaders around us. What place does God have in, in that? Because it's very easy for us to, um, to give him little or no place. It's very easy for us to just be like the, the largely godless world around us, to be swept along with everyone else, to join the crowd, as this, uh, this image kind of expresses, to just fit in with the crowd. It's, kind of a, it's a bit like peer group pressure, which is a reality for us all. Now, I think we can, we can think of the peer group pressure, well, that's just something that affects kids and teenagers, you know, the need to conform to fit in. Everyone's got the, the new iPhone, I want the new iPhone. Everyone's going to that party, I want to go to that party. It does affect children and teenagers, but actually I don't think we grow out of it. I think we just get more sophisticated in how we express it. Uh, we still see how other people do things and we feel the pressure to do the same. I pull up in my driveway and I notice my neighbour tending his beautiful garden and I think, wow, my neighbour has a great garden, I should have a great garden. Why? I mean, that's a pretty dumb reason. If my neighbour's got a great garden, so I should have a great garden. I mean, if I wanted to have a great garden because I enjoyed gardening, well, that'd be a good reason, or, or because I like to pull up in my drive and see my nice garden, that, that might be a good reason, but to think I should have a good garden because he's got a good garden is actually pretty ridiculous. And yet we feel the pull of peer group pressure. Um, us people are really a lot like sheep. We, we tend to follow the rest of the flock. I know that some of you are, uh, are rough individualists and, and you definitely don't follow the, the crowd, but most of us will. We, we, even if it means we all sort of chant Monty Python style, we're all individuals. Thank you. Someone is going to do it. Um, to illustrate this, this idea that we're like sheep, um, many years ago I was handing out leaflets at a train station and, uh, and what I noticed is that people tended to kind of come in, in, in groups. They'd pile off a train and they'd, they'd, they'd flow out of the, the train station in, in a group. And what I, what I worked out is that if I, I could get the first and the second person in the group to, to take a leaflet, pretty much everyone else in that group would also take a leaflet. But if the first and second person refused to take a leaflet, no one else would, would take a leaflet in that group. We really are like sheep. It's just easy to go with the flow. It seems that the people of Israel back in Samuel's day were, pulling, were, sorry, were feeling the pull of going with the flow of becoming just like the people around them as they looked for a leader who would deliver them to bring them security to bring them success and I think there's <clears throat> there's valuable lessons for us to learn here from their mistakes uh, and to learn from what God says in this part of his word uh, but first just to set the scene end of chapter 7 we looked at last week uh, we saw that Israel had returned to the Lord they'd, they'd given up their idols they'd cried out to the Lord and the Lord had rescued them. Samuel was their leader. Things were going well. This was a high point for Israel. But then in chapter 8, we read what happens when Samuel grew old. So verse 1, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. This is a bit of an experiment, Samuel. 
appoints his, his sons as leaders. And I think as readers of this book of 1 Samuel, we read this, this ought to kind of concern us. I mean, appointing sons as successors has, had not gone well previously. If we remember Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, it was a disaster. And sure enough, this time also the experiment fails. Verse 3, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons were corrupt. They were in it for what they could gain for themselves. They were takers, not givers. And so the problem, uh, the, the problem was for Israel that, well, Samuel's old, his time's almost up, his sons are not like him, they're corrupt, and so what should they do? That's the problem. Their solution is to tell Samuel, give us a king. Verse 4, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Or in the old version, it's behold, you're old. A little confronting. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Give us a king. It's an interesting request given the context uh, Samuel had been their judge. Uh, they don't say, hey, you're old. Um, can you please pray to God and ask him to give us another judge, kind of like you, after you're gone? No, they say, give us a king. They want a system where the leadership is automatically passed on to the sons of the leader, which is a bizarre request given the history of Eli and Samuel and their sons. I mean, those, they've both shown that the best of leaders can have the worst of sons but they seem to be blinded to that. They just want a king. And Samuel is not impressed. Verse 6, this displeased Samuel. Well, literally, this was evil in his eyes. They were rejecting, they were rejecting him. I mean, sure, he was old, but he wasn't done yet. And they're saying, give us a new leader, you're past it. But bigger than that, the bigger problem is there than the rejection of Samuel is they are are rejecting the Lord. As Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I've brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. God says they're not only rejecting you, Samuel, they're actually rejecting me as their king, just like they've done before. What's surprising, though, is that God says, give them a king, let them have a king, but warn them, warn them first what a bad idea this is. And so Samuel does, he warns them, he tells them all the things that this king will do to them. And there's one word in these, uh, these verses that appears again and again. It's the word take. The king will take, verse 11, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses that will run in front of his chariots, some of them will sign to be commanders of thousands. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards, olives. He will take, he will take, he will take. The king will be a taker for himself, just as Samuel's corrupt sons were takers for themselves. They see this king as the answer to their problem, but he will turn out just the same. God lets them have a king. 
And actually, that's part of his judgment on them. He hands them over to get what they've asked for. And that's often what God, what God does. If we reject him and if we, if we say, I want to live my life without him, I want to go my own way, part of God's judgment is actually to give us over into the mess of what we choose. And this is what he says will happen to Israel. And he warns them of this. Do they listen? No. Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And here we see that the real reason for wanting a king comes to the fore. It's not just that Samuel is getting old. It's because they want to be like all the other nations. Faced with the threat of their enemies, they want to have a king to, to go out before them and to fight their battles. At which point we should be thinking, but, but, but hang on, haven't they already got one of those? I mean, the chapter just before this, we saw that the Lord God went out before them. He thundered against the Philistine army such that they were routed before the Israelites. And yet, in their desire to be like the other nations, to have a real king, Israel rejected the Lord as their king. Which is a colossal failure for Israel, who were meant to be God's holy people. As God has said to them through Moses in Exodus 19, verse 5, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were meant to be different from the nations, to belong to God as his holy people. But they rejected God. They just want to be like the other nations. Nonetheless, God gives them what they ask. What they ask for, verse 22, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Give them a king. And we read, Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. It's a curious response from Samuel. He sends everyone home. He doesn't appoint someone on the spot. We're going to have to wait to find out who this new king will be. Sorry, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. You have to come back next week to find out. Or if you really can't wait, you could, you could read on. But I want to pause there and think for now, what, are these, what does this chapter teach us? Here we have God's people, Israel, rejecting him, rejecting his leadership of them and wanting to be like the world around them, to be the same, to pursue, pursue security and safety and success in just the same ways as the world around them does. Now, we don't face the same um, threat of invading armies amidst a leadership crisis, but it's worth us reflecting and asking ourselves in our desire for security and success, do we kind of do the same thing? Or do we feel the pull of that? Do we, do we listen to and follow the world around us such that we, we kind of sideline God and his rule over us? What might that look like for us? Well, our world's wisdom uh, about the way to security success, it, it can take many different forms, but I think in broad brushstrokes, I reckon the, in the culture of our day uh, in 21st century southwest Sydney, I reckon it basically kind of boils down to so four things. Work hard to build a career, number one. Secondly, get the best stuff. Thirdly, have the most fun. And fourthly, have a couple of kids so you can help them to do the same thing. 
That's kind of how our, our world works. That's how the world around us lives. These are, the, if you like, the, the edicts of the kingdom of 21st century materialistic, hedonistic southwest Sydney. And I wonder how much of a pull that that has on us. I mean, how different to our world are we at this point? Because we should be different. I mean, just like as Israel were chosen to be God's holy people, if we are followers of Christ Jesus, then we are to be God's holy people. Uh, 1 Peter 2 puts it like this, writing to Christians. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, echoing um, the language of Exodus 19 that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, if we've come to Jesus, if we put our trust in him, if we've received the forgiveness of our sins, then we are God's people. And we've been called out of darkness, called into his wonderful light. And so we should be different As the next verse in 1 Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. We are foreigners, exiles. Like we are the red arrow. Less than 4% of Australians attend Bible-based churches. We are different. And we're called to be different. What will that difference look like? Well, it might mean all sorts of things. But if I can, I guess, pick up on the message of our culture that I outlined before and just kind of give some, some counter, counter examples, it will mean that instead of building a career, we'll work a job. I mean, building a career is often about gaining a sense of meaning, a sense of significance, of, of worth, of importance. Of, you know, I've climbed to this point, I have this much responsibility, I earn this much money. But so what? I mean, that's not where our value lies. That's not who we, who we are. I mean, we're not going to stand before God on the last day and say, hey, God, look at, you know, look at how many 60-hour weeks I worked. Or look at, at, at the size of my salary. If you're a Christian, then you belong to God and your value is found in him. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not down on work. It's good to, to work hard, to be successful. It's good to take on responsibility. It's good to enjoy our work if we're able to and find satisfaction in it. In fact, as a Christian, it's right to work hard, to be diligent, to apply ourselves. In fact, in doing that, we might be quite different to the world around us. But don't seek to build a career. Work a job. Because at the end of the day, we work to pay the bills. Hopefully, we'll also do good as we work and help to, to rule over and bring order to God's world. But when it boils down to it, we work to pay the bills, to provide for ourselves, our families, and to to have something that we can share with those in need, as Ephesians 4, verse 28 says. So work a job, don't build a career. That's the first point. Secondly, our world says, get the best stuff. He with the most toys wins. And we may see that and hear that and think, well, that's that's shallow, that's foolish. Of course we don't uh, don't think that. But I wonder how easy it is to be be brainwashed by our materialistic, consumer-driven culture. It's just the air that we breathe. And so we find ourselves thinking, gee, I wish I, I really wish I had that thing. I mean, that would make my life better. That would make me happy. Our desire for stuff and the, the value and importance that we can place on it is really quite ridiculous. And we do well to consider Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verse 19, where he says, Do not store up for yourselves 
treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is our treasure? We can store up treasure in heaven. And so instead of trying to get the most, storing up for ourselves, try to give the most, storing up treasure in heaven. Um, Use what what God has entrusted to you to advance his kingdom. Instead of spending $700 on that thing that you you don't need, spend it on giving giving it to the work of CMS to see the the gospel advance in Spain or, or training up pastors in Tanzania or ministering to, to the youth of our church, or helping out a family in need, whatever it is. Don't store up for, for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't get the most for yourself. Give the most for God's kingdom. Third example, our world says, well, life is about having the most fun, enjoy life. There's a half-truth here. God is a God of joy, of blessing. God is good. His creation is good. And the Garden of Eden was a place of of joy and contentment and pleasure and heaven will be a place of of incredible joy where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We we can't begin to imagine how good that is. As Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Christians ought to be people of joy. We sure have a lot to rejoice about. I think the kind of stereotypical killjoy Christian, it, it, it doesn't square with the God of the Bible. But life and joy and peace is not found in self-seeking and self-indulgence. You know that idea that I build build the best career so I can get the best stuff, so I can live a life of of, of fun and and enjoyment? Well, for some, don't worry about the career or the the best stuff, just live for a good time. But it actually doesn't satisfy. Self-seeking, self-indulgence will never satisfy. Because real joy, real joy is found in knowing God, the God who's created us, who who can forgive us through Jesus. Real joy is found in being right with him and walking in his ways, serving him, serving others. That's where we find joy. Fourth difference to the world around us, our kids. I think the way to see what a person truly believes is to look at what they they teach and model and want for their children. Uh, For those of us with kids, it's worth reflecting and and asking ourselves, what is it that we want for our children? Uh, Is it to just follow along the ways of the world and to want success in the world's eyes? Is it that they excel at school or at sport or at dancing or music? Or or is it that, that they know Jesus and that they grow in godliness? that they stand firm as a Christian, often against the flow of the world around them, and that they serve others at at, at church, at youth group. What do we want for our kids? and What are we modelling to them? They're just a few examples of of ways that, like Israel in their desire for success and security, that, that we too can look to the world around us and take on its principles, its priorities, and in doing that, end up rejecting the leadership that God gives to us, that God calls us to as his holy people. Perhaps there's changes that you need to make to your life. As we come out of lockdown, as we kind of caused us to, to 
to reset in lots of ways, maybe there's some changes that you need to make. Maybe there's ways you need to repent and ask God to forgive you and to change you. And you know the good news? God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Uh, Israel was, was heading off the rails. God didn't give up on them. In fact, he gave them a king, as we'll see in the, in the coming weeks. And actually, despite the weakness of that king, God still empowered him to save his people. God is faithful and he has a plan. And even though we may wander off in our desire to, to be like the world around us, God still sent his son, the great king, the true king, Jesus, the perfect king. And he calls us to come back to him, to, to receive forgiveness, to be his people and to live, live now as foreigners, strangers in this world, living for his kingdom. My prayer is that, that God would help each and every one of us to do just that. Amen. Rob's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer now. Thanks, Rob.